Well, I hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year's, and welcome to Amazon return season. <laughs> Did you know that it's Amazon return season? I read this week that 4.2 billion packages were delivered by Amazon in 2020. We don't even know the numbers on 2021 yet, but I was even more interested to find out that about 15% of those packages were later returned. And it might not surprise you, maybe you made it, did you make a return? I made like three returns. But all the stuff I bought, no, not stuff other people bought for me, I wouldn't do that, but maybe you did, don't tell your spouse. But the worst categories, which this might not surprise you, the worst category was that of clothing. 40% of clothes bought on Amazon were returned. Husbands, do not look at your wives right now. I, I know you're tempted, but don't do it. Wives, don't look at your husbands with this one. 40% of electronic goods were also returned. So, guys, you're just as bad, okay? It's amazing, right, with so many, a high volume of packages that are delivered that so many are returned, but I think it's a helpful lesson for us that we ought to remind ourselves of often that things that are new don't always make us happy. Sometimes we believe the lie that if we get something that's novel or new, that that will be fulfilling to us. And if anything, the stats on Amazon returns will prove to us yet again that that's not always the case. And as we approach a new year, I, I think we all have a desire to really have a happy new year. And maybe you've said that to somebody, and I want you to have a happy new year, but I think that there's an old path that will lead to true fulfillment, true happiness. It's not a novel thing. It's something that's old, and it's familiar, and it comes from Psalm chapter 1. So I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 1. This is a very simple passage today. Maybe you know it. Maybe you've memorized it, but I want you to look at it today with fresh ears because it's going to describe a path of life that leads to true blessedness, true happiness, true fulfillment, where novel things don't always do that. First word here is blessed or happy. Really, it's an expression that says, how happy is the person who, in this text, it says, does not do certain things. It's the same expression used in 1 Kings 10 when the queen of Sheba says to Solomon, how happy are your servants? How happy are your men? Because they get to hear your wisdom all the time. It's like this exclamation. How happy is the person who, it says here, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? So the truly happy, satisfied businessman, the truly happy and satisfied Christian woman, what do they not do? The first thing they don't do is they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does that mean? That word counsel is used all over the, the Bible, whether to talk about the counsel of the Lord, the counsel of other people. You get the idea. It's like, I don't want to fill my ears. I don't want to see with my eyes things that are always produced and made by wicked people to promote wicked things. And the idea here is really, it's this picture of walking on a path. Even that path imagery is going to come up this whole psalm. It says, blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Even that, there's a little bit of a progression there. Do you see that? You start by walking, and then you start to linger, standing. The idea here is that the blessed person doesn't spend his time always with people that are trying to corrupt his Christianity, people who are trying to corrupt his mind, to turn him away from the law of God. But the other thing is they, they don't stand around with them either. The last thing might be the most graphic, he says, nor the one who sits in the seat of scoffers. The words wicked and sinners are very, very similar in the Hebrew Bible. They're very similar. The word scoffer is taking it to a next level. The book of Proverbs talks about the scoffer, right? If you look up the word scoffer, you'll see it all throughout the Proverbs. It's the person who knows the law of God, who's maybe been taught the law of God, who laughs at it. 
who scoffs at it, who looks down on people who follow the righteous path. He says, if you're not careful, you might start by walking in the counsel of the wicked. You'll end up standing in the way of sinners. And at some point, if you keep on that path, you will sit and identify with the seat of scoffers. That's a warning for us. To the righteous person, the blessed person doesn't listen to some things, but on the contrary, verse two, look what he listens to. Look what this Christian woman listens to and this Christian man. What does he delight in? He delights in the law of the Lord. It doesn't say he reads his Bible. That's where you start, right? You gotta read your Bible to delight in the law of the Lord, but do you see that it's a higher standard than that? The person who delights, who loves being in God's law. The person who can't wait to open their Bibles the person who can't wait to talk about it, because look what it says next. It says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditating is that idea of murmuring, chatting, right? The person who's always thinking about it and taking that same line of scripture over and over and over and over and over again in his mind, thinking about it, talking about it, talking about it with his family, thinking about it even when he's alone. When there's quiet, that's some of his favorite time because he's always thinking about the law of God. That's the happy person. If I asked you to describe what would a happy new year look like, I don't know if we would often describe this. Well, I want to stop listening to the wicked, and I want to start meditating and loving God's word more. If that's not at the top of our list, Psalm 1 says it should be. It should be for me. It should be for you. It says, here's what this person's like. Verse number three. Check it out. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Right? That's the, the picture. So you want to know what this blessed person's like, this fulfilled, happy, satisfied Christian. What are they like? Well, they're like a tree that's planted on purpose. That word planted, some people think it's, it really means to be transplanted. It's like the idea that it was somewhere else before and it gets purposely put near a stream of water. Right? Whether that be a river or an aqueduct or a channel or whatever, it's like the idea is you are set in a location that is connecting you to a life source. It says this person yields its fruit in its season. Whenever the time for the fruit to come, it, it comes. Whenever the time for spiritual success comes, it comes. Whenever the time of prosperity, whatever, it comes to this person because they're planted by this life source. And it says, and its leaf does not wither. You know, it's not super impressive for a leaf not to wither in a really good climate, right? In a climate like ours, I mean, today was weird. I was, went to my car and there was frost on my windshield. I literally had, like, for the, I think the first time ever here, I had to pour hot water on my windshield because it was frosted over. Even my windshield wiper wouldn't get it off. Like I had to, some of you who lived in other parts of the country are laughing at me right now. Like, it was crazy. It was like, okay, that's, that's pretty, we have pretty good weather here, right? Our trees, yeah, it's like, it's not that bad to be outside. But what about when you step outside and it's August and you're in Phoenix, Arizona and you walk outside, you know what that feels like? Remember? Hot, right? It's like you walked into a wall. And some of you have been in other parts of the country and you walk outside and it's negative 30 and it's like hitting a different wall, right? Well, in Israel, we're probably talking about heat here. These Israelites were familiar. They're used to the idea of a hot, hot summer, a lot like ours. And the idea is this tree, although it's getting destroyed by the sun day in and day out, guess what? Its leaf does not wither. How is that possible? For this person to go through trials and hard times and to be facing so much hardship, for them not to wither. How? Well, being by plugged in to the life source, which here I think the idea is the life source is this law of God. This person is connected to the law of God. The next line says, in all that he does, he prospers. That's not 
health and wealth gospel. The idea here, I think, comes from Joshua 1. I think probably the psalmist is picking up on the language of Joshua 1. If you remember Joshua 1, God said to Joshua, hey, remember, keep the book of the law on your heart and on your tongue, your mouth, all the time as you go into the land. And guess what God will do for you? In all that you do, you will prosper. The idea is in the mission that God had for Joshua, when did they succeed? When did the success come? Well, is when they were thinking about the law of God, when they were remembering the promises of God. Well, not with Achan, not with the little city of Ai. If you remember Joshua, right, there's times where they don't succeed. Well, what's happening? They're breaking the law of God. There's a connection between this success in God's mission and obedience to God's law. Same thing here. Verse number four gives the opposite. It says, the first two words in the text are not so. In, in our text, it says the wicked are not so, but, but I want you to just see that like screaming at you if you're a person who underlines stuff in your Bible. I mean, underline not so. That is the emphatic word that says at the beginning, the wicked are not like that tree. They experience the same heat. They might experience the same trials. They go through the same hard life, but instead of succeeding and being green, evergreen, every season, they are the opposite. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is a really, really biblical, you know, illustration. You probably don't use it unless you're talking about biblical things, right? You don't talk about the chaff. Or you might think of the tumbleweeds, right? Imagine, you know, the tumbleweeds out in the, the desert, right? where there's a little bush that you know, gets blown around by the wind, and then it gathers with one another, and it kind of goes across the road when it's a windy day. That's the description here. It's like chaff. Chaff in the Bible is that, well, it's not just in the Bible. It's, you know, there's still chaff today, where the wheat is separated from its outer shell. And what they would do is they would take the, the wheat and they would throw it up in the air. And when they did that, the wind would carry the chaff away and the wheat would fall to the earth. It's the same illustration that Jesus gives in the New Testament when he talks about the people who are real Christians and the people who are fake Christians. He says there will come a day when God splits the church, so to speak, between the real ones and the fake ones. And the split will be like the splitting of wheat and chaff. They'll all get thrown up in the air and one will fade and one will come back down to the earth. As the wicked are not so, they're like the chaff. They're vulnerable. They're not resilient. They're apt to, to have a hard time because they, they can't stand the pressures of life. Verse number five, therefore, because the wicked are not so, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. It's just a, such a powerful figure. Can't you imagine someone who, after they've been vindicated, they stand before the judge and they lift their eyes and they're vindicated, right? They stand in the judgment. Well, what about the person who's read off as guilty, right? Eyes go down. Not so bold anymore ashamed, condemned. Right? That's the idea. This wicked path, it leads to condemnation. It leads to being pressed down. It says, nor are the sinners. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. We just read the end of the Bible, Psalm, or, uh, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 8 says that one of the reasons why the new Jerusalem is going to be so great, one of the things that makes it so great is the exclusion of those who hate God. As hard of a truth as that is, in the middle of this amazing description of this perfect world, it says, but there will be people who are, are not there. It's the same idea here. Whether it's looking at the congregation of the righteous here on earth or probably looking to the congregation of the righteous in the end, it says the wicked people who walk on the wicked path, they will never stand in the congregation of the righteous. Verse number six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He is constantly knowing. He's constantly aware. His perfect care is for those who are walking on this path of righteousness, but the way of the wicked will perish, it will end. I like that in verse six, there's that description of two different ways. 
And I think that's how I want you to look at this whole psalm. I think that's the way it's presented, that there's two paths. There's two ways, and many of us are on one or the other of those paths. And we need to see that maybe you say, I am walking on the righteous path. I do want to serve God. I've repented of my sins. I love Jesus. He's my Savior. Okay, that's good. But even you are vulnerable to desire to go down a different path. Every time you sin, that's what happens. You're choosing not to do what God has you do on that righteous path. That's why sins of commission are bad, but sins of omission oftentimes are just as bad because there's a path of righteousness that God has for his people. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. The things that he prepared beforehand, those works that he has chosen for us to do, we're supposed to walk in them. So even if you are right with God and you look at this and you say, I will stand in the judgment, I will stand in the congregation of the righteous because Jesus has justified me, even you, just know, when we look at this text, there is a way of happiness and there's a way of disaster. And really this text says, if we want to have a happy new year, there's one thing we have to stop doing. There's one thing we have to start doing or keep doing. And there are two things for us to remember. And those are our four points today. But first of all, I'd love for you to write this down from verse number one. I want us all to guard against corrupting influences. I want us to guard against corrupting influences. Walking, standing, sitting. What that might look like practically for us is putting up with sin not avoiding sinful places that at one point pricked our conscience, but now it doesn't hurt so bad. Media that we watch, entertainment that we take in, podcasts that we listen to, news that we watch, that, yeah, we know it's probably not good for us, but we kind of have gotten over that, that pang of conscience, and we just kind of keep doing that, keep listening, keep watching, whatever it is. That's the idea. Walking, standing, sitting, You put up with sin. Then you feel bad for for the sin. You think, well, it's not that bad. Maybe you excuse the sin, and after a while, you'll find yourself committing the sin. And if you sit in the seat of scoffers, it's just so poetic how he puts it. At some point, you might be the person that's promoting that sin. You might be the person who tells someone, don't feel bad about watching that. Don't feel bad about listening to that. It's not that bad. Even in subtle ways, we do that, don't we? When we expose ourselves to things that we shouldn't, even in subtle ways, that happens. We're never going to do this well, I don't think, if we don't recognize that we are vulnerable to being influenced. You might look at your kids and you think, well, they'll just do anything I tell them to do, or they won't do anything I tell them to do, or they do everything that their friends want them. Like, it's like, okay, it's easy to see maybe in younger people, like, well, they're influenceable. They can be changed for better or for worse, right? You might be tempted to think, well, not me, though. I'm stubborn, right? I, you know, my wife tells me all the time I'm stubborn, so I, clearly... This, this verse doesn't apply to me because I'll never, I'll never change. I'll never do what other people want me to do. Well, you stubborn people, whether you're stubborn like me or maybe you're not so stubborn, you all started drinking coffee at some point and it wasn't good the first time you had it. Was it? It wasn't good. But there was something that brought you back, right? It wasn't the taste. Right? I, so I, personal confession, I used to be very anti-coffee. I was an anti-coffee evangelist. Right? I was a part of the counter-reformation of coffee. I just like, did not want to be a part of it. Um, and I'd often tell people, oh, you don't need coffee. Like, didn't God give you energy? And then God took away energy and gave me coffee. <laughs> Slowly but surely, right? I made it to about 16, 17 without actually getting into coffee. But then some people in my life were drinking coffee. Some pastors at our church were influencing me to drink coffee. <laughs> Slowly but surely. And you know, I didn't start out with black coffee. I didn't. I started out with, you know, the, the, the Java chip mocha stuff. You know what I'm talking about? You, you need to move past that. 
And then you can move to like a, like a latte with some syrup in it, right? It's a little bit better. I mean, it's clearly coffee. I mean, the, the, the frappuccino, you don't even know if any coffee's in there. I don't know if that even helps. But then you, you, know, you get the latte with some syrup. That's a little bit more studly. And then you, you take the syrup away. You say, no, I'm just good with the coffee and the milk. I'm good. And then you make it to the peak. You just like drink espresso. I'm almost there. Like I, I'm not quite there. I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. But black coffee's good. I like black coffee. But the point is, it happens slowly but surely. And it's interesting because there's something that keeps bringing you back, right? Maybe it is the desire to have the more energy, right? And you're influenceable. We all need to recognize that we're influenceable. Even if you're the most stubborn person in the room. God's word says that we should not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. Why does it say do not be deceived? Well, probably because it's easy for us to deceive ourselves on that, right? That makes sense. Don't be deceived. It's a verse we quote to our kids and to our students, but is it a verse that we often think about? Bad company corrupts good morals. My conscience is being harmed by listening to, taking in, watching things that I know I shouldn't, and I'd be embarrassed for other people to know that I did, but, but my conscience slowly and surely being seared. Another verse that corresponds with 1 Corinthians 15 is Proverbs 13, 20. You know that verse. It says, whoever walks with the wise will, will become wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. So you're like, okay, I don't want to have my kids hang out with bad people because if they hang out with bad people, then they'll, they'll suffer, right? Well, okay. Same thing's true for us. We don't often think of the next verse, verse 21, which says disaster pursues sinners. So graphic, right? It's like the idea of something pursuing you down this road. If we use the path analogy of Psalm 1, path of the wicked, the path of the righteous. There's a, there's a monster, there's a beast, so to speak, chasing people down on the path of wickedness, and it's called disaster. But the righteous are rewarded with good. They're chased down by steadfast love. David puts it like that in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will chase after me, will pursue me all the days of my life. How can he say that with such confidence? Well, because he's the guy who wrote Psalm 16, who talked about in God's path, he's revealed the path of, of righteousness, and in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So whether that's your media, your entertainment, your news, your TV, your coworkers, your family, your friends, which I think, actually, this text is mostly talking about the people that you surround yourself with. Just the interesting thing about our day is you can have people talking to you all the time, all the time, in your car, in your AirPods, right? You walk around, you go to the gym, people are talking to you all the time and they're voices that you choose. That's what's so interesting about this text and our, our modern application to it. We get to choose, in some cases and sometimes, what we fill our mind with. That's always been the case, but I think now more than ever, we should be held responsible as Christians for the good things that we fill our minds with or the bad things we fill our mind with. In fact, God's people are sometimes characterized as the ones who do not associate or do not hang out with, or whatever word you want to use, the people who don't associate themselves intentionally with the wicked. Psalm 15, 4 says that. It asks the question, who will dwell with God? Who are the people who are closest to God and will one day live with God? Psalm 15, 4 says, those in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Take that, flip it on its head the person who does not highly esteem those who are wicked, the people who don't make their life role models those who are on the path of wickedness. Who's going to live with God? Well, the ones who are constantly thinking, the people that I look up to, the people I want to pursue, the people I want to emulate are not the people on the path of the wicked. 
Let's take stock of that in our own lives. I know this is such a simple truth, but let's remember it. Let's be more like David in Psalm 16, where he says, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love being with God's people, not those other people. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus assumes this posture from us. He says, assuming that you have this basic understanding that Psalm 1 gives of this posture that I don't want to purposely and intentionally fill my mind with wicked and and corrupting influences, he says in Matthew 6, when he's teaching us to pray, what's the last thing that we're taught to pray? Think about it. The last thing we're taught to pray. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or maybe a better translation is the evil one from the schemes of Satan. I don't want to be delivered into the schemes that Satan has for me. What are those schemes in your life? What are those things, the ways that Satan wants to trap you? The Bible gives some simple categories for that that we can look at some other time, but as you think about this, what are the schemes that are trying to trap you? What's the media that's trying to consume your whole life? That you need to say this year, I'm just not even gonna listen to it as much. I need to take some steps back from that. I need to guard against it. There are consequences to what we hear, what we take in, what we listen to. That's why another time Paul said, do not be deceived, was in Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 7, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Very general principle that can apply a lot of different places. But here, he says in the next verse, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You give yourself to sin, just just even a smidgen, what happens? It comes back more. You take one step there, you take one compromise, it leads to more and more and more. One little lie leads to two lies, which leads to multiple, which leads to a double life. That might sound black and white and dramatic, but I think that's the warning that Scripture presents us with. But the one who sows from the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Instead of running away from sin, sometimes we're guilty of lingering in it. Remember that story of Lot in Sodom? Remember that? What does it say about Lot, he's warned to flee the city. God's judgment is coming, flee the city, right? He goes to his sons-in-laws, and he says to them, hey, hey, we gotta go. And they think he's joking, and he stays the night, when really he shouldn't have. He should have just listened and left. The text says something interesting. After describing what Lot did, this nephew of Abraham, this righteous man, as the New Testament says, there's a little tiny line in the book of Genesis, that I think is so interesting. After describing this, he says, and Lot lingered, right? He lingered, he stayed, he didn't run. What are the consequences of him lingering? Instead of saying, we're leaving, get out of here. Well, his sons-in-laws, they, they perished in Sodom. His wife turned back. Right? I mean, it was just horrible things happened after this, right? Because he lingered. I think the same can be true of us. Which is why I think the Bible is so clear so often, Romans 12, 2 comes to mind, that we're not supposed to be conformed to the world. We are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How is our mind renewed? Right? It's like your, your operating system needs to be changed. Where it naturally is, is inclined towards sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, our hearts are inclined to sin. They're, they're desperately sick and wicked. Right? So they need to be changed constantly. If we stand still, we'll revert back to, to our natural programming, so to speak our sinfulness. So they need to be constantly renewed and shaped. What on earth could possibly shape our minds? Psalm 1, 2. What does it say? But the blessed man, his delight, his love is in the law of the Lord because on his law, he meditates 
day and night. That's the second thing. If we want to live a blessed life, not only do we have to guard against corrupting influences, secondly, we need to resolve to depend on God's word. We need to resolve to depend on God's word. As so many people make resolutions this time of year, I hope that this is a part of what you are setting as a goal for yourself. If you're in Christ, I hope this is part of your goal, that I want to depend on God's word more than ever. For some of you, that looks like being more faithful in your Bible reading. For others of you, you have been faithful in your Bible reading. Reading your Bible doesn't mean you're going to depend on God's word. You can't depend on God's word without reading your Bible, but just reading your Bible is not enough. There's a difference. Depending on God's word. The reason I say depending is because that's the illustration of the tree. A tree planted by streams of water that are constantly being fed by this life source. That's the illustration. It should be the illustration for us. And am I like a tree planted by the life source? Am I a a tree, so to speak, that's constantly taking in from the life source? Because guess what? You are planted by the life source, aren't you? If you're in Christ, what does John 15 say? What does Jesus say? Abide in me. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. We are close, but we need to take it in. I mean, the the Christians throughout church history that would probably put us to shame for how much they loved and cared about the scraps of God's word that they had. We have an abundance, an overabundance. Sometimes when we have an overabundance, we weirdly lack an appetite for it. It reminds me of when my daughter Eden was born just about six or seven seven weeks ago today, I think. Um, Not I think, I know. Seven weeks ago today. She was a little girl, a little tiny one, six pounds and something ounces, um, six pounds, eight ounces, and she needed a lot of food, obviously. Well, not a lot of food, because she's a baby, right? But it was like this nurse sat me down and said, look, your kid has jaundice. And I'm like, what's jaundice? And she explained to me that, like, she, she kind of, like, scared me, actually, not going to lie. She's like, look, if she doesn't eat this much and she doesn't do all the right things here, she doesn't have, uh, you know, this amount of food and this amount of time and always eating, if she doesn't have it, she's going to have brain damage and it's going to be terrible. And it's like, oh, okay, 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 I- I'll listen. And this, this nurse sat me down. It's really funny. She said, are you responsible enough to take care of this log? She gave me a spreadsheet. She said, I want you to write down every time that girl eats. The minute she starts, I want you to write it down. And the minute she ends, I want you to write it down. And if you need to give her a bottle because she's not eating enough, then you need to write down exactly how much, not in fluid ounces. I'm talking the metric system, milliliters. Like, I need all the specifics. I'm like, okay, I guess so. Yeah, of course, I'll do it, right? Because what do I think? This nurse is telling me, well, there's danger that my little girl is in if I don't do What's right, if I don't feed her what she needs, if we don't give her enough, there's danger, right? Well, are you in that danger for not taking in the word of God? The scripture says you are. 1 Peter 2.2 says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That's what we should be. View yourself as a newborn infant who needs the milk of the word. You might say, well, wait a minute, Um, but that's for babies. Babies need to eat a certain amount of time John, you didn't need to eat a certain amount of time. Right? You could actually miss a few meals and you'd be fine, right? Well, because you're, you're more mature in your stomach. You, you don't need as much food, right? I don't think it's that way with the scriptures. I think that's where this illustration breaks down because for us, the more mature you are doesn't mean you need the word less. The more mature you are, the greater appetite you should have. If we have a lack of appetite and we somehow blame that on our spiritual maturity, I think we're deceived. I think a lack of an appetite for God's word is not a sign of maturity. It's, it's more of a sign of a hard heart, isn't it? 
I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119. I want you to see a guy who is hungry for the word of God. And I want you to read this, and as I've read it this week, and just thinking, wow, how do we get there? How do we get this appetite? How do we get this zealous for God's word? Well, it starts by taking it in. With Eden's uh, feeding, they gave us like a spreadsheet type of thing. It was like this pink piece of paper. But then afterwards, they said, once you fill this pink piece of paper up, you need to keep like a spreadsheet. So we got all serious. We kept a spreadsheet. We wrote all these things down. It was super first parent move, right? Totally. I get it, right? Probably won't do it for the next one. But it's just, it was, we were into it, right? There's no shame in keeping a spreadsheet of what you read in God's word if you feel like you have malnourished yourself or your family, right? Because remember, the scripture says, fathers, you are responsible for feeding the word, not only to your wife, but also to your kids. If you feel like I haven't fed my family the way I need to, there's no shame in making a spreadsheet, Hopefully the spreadsheet will go away at some point, just like it did for feeding a little baby. But the truth is, if we are constantly feeding on God's word, we're going to start to say stuff like this. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those. Not just in theory, but in practice. I know that we are blessed, the people who walk in the way that is blameless, the righteous path, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse number 9 asks the question, how can a young man young woman, old person, whatever, how can they keep their way pure? I think the idea is for the young man, that's probably the hardest demographic to keep their way pure, right? How can even the hardest demographic keep their way pure? How? Well, it's possible by guarding it according to your word. He says, with my whole heart, I seek you. I want to know God with my whole heart. Let me not wander from your commandments. Wander, you see that? It's the same imagery, the path imagery, right? It's like I'm walking on this path. Let me not wander. I don't want to wander. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Part of all of this is getting God's word in our hearts. And when you meditate on God's word, when you murmur God's word, when sometimes you turn off the radio or turn off the podcast and just keep repeating the words that you heard that morning in God's word, just over in your mind, over and over, chewing on it, thinking about it, guess what's gonna happen? Well, you're gonna store up God's word in your heart really fast. And the whole point is because I don't wanna sin against the Lord. Look at verse 25. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Maybe some of you felt like that this last year. Maybe there's some really hard things. Or you felt like even at times, like you didn't know if you wanted to even keep going. Psalmist says, yeah, my soul clings to the dust. So here's what I need. Give me life, God, according to your word. Life can be found in God's word. Look at verse 28. Same idea. My soul melts away for sorrow. Maybe that's what you're in right now. Maybe you're in a season right now where your soul is melting away for sorrow. Maybe the death of a loved one. Maybe a diagnosis. Maybe children who are not walking in the path of the Lord. My soul melts away for sorrow. How can I be strengthened? Well, according to your word. Strengthen me according to your word. How do we do that? Look at verse 37. He says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And give me life according to your ways. Has there ever been a time where your eyes are more readily available to look at worthless things than right now? I'd make the argument that no time in human history is it easier for you to spend time looking at worthless things. It doesn't even say sinful things. Just the idea is just things that don't matter, right? So I'm not saying you going on social media is, is sinful. It's, I don't think it is. It could be. But the idea is, if you are consumed by something that's keeping you from God's word, then the scriptures say, and I think it's very clear for us, and we all need to be reminded, although it's simple, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life 
in your ways. That's what it looks like. Look at verse 92. Drop down to verse 92 in the text. This is something interesting here. He says, if your law had not been my delight, like if God's word was not the most exciting thing for me, like it just says in Psalm 1, right? The, the, the delight of our heart. If your word had not been my delight, what does it say? I would have perished in my affliction. I never could have gotten through that trial. I never could have gotten through it if God's word was not my delight. Because if I look at my circumstance, just like that tree can look around and say, it's really hot. It's really parched out here. What does the tree do? Well, it turns the attention to the life source and draws from it. That's what we need to do as Christians. We need to turn our attention to the life source. If I had not loved the law of God, I would have perished in my affliction. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. I mean, think about what that's saying. I love the Bible more than money. I love the Bible more than success. I love the Bible more than pleasure. I love the Bible more than anything else. That is the idea. And that needs to be always in our mind. And if we're not there, and if we can't truly say that we're there, we need to constantly get there. And here's how we get there, by plugging into God's word. It starts with starting. It starts with meditating on God's word. Some of us maybe looked at this passage and noticed the law language, and maybe that was confusing to you, where it says meditate on the law, what about the, the law? Oh, the law, like the New Testament doesn't say like the law condemns us, like the law, what is he talking about? Right? Well, the law, that's the, that's the word Torah, it means teaching, right? I think it can apply to all of scripture as we see it, right? When, when, when the psalmist is talking about it, there's a very small amount of the law, but even if we were gonna go to the book of the law, what should we meditate on in the book of the law as we're starting to read it in the new year? What's the book of the law of the law? Well, Deuteronomy, right? Because that's like the law of the law. Right? Well, what's the law of the law of the law? Right? What's the key commandment? What did Jesus say? Well, it's Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay? We could meditate on those words all year long. Think about it. I mean, what does it mean for me to love the Lord with all my heart every day? That is a lot of fodder for us to chew on. Then it says, so interesting, that the law of the law of the law, what does he say? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The idea is they shall be pressed on your heart always. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Like even at the height of the law, there's another commandment right after this commandment that they should love God with all their might and do all that stuff and love God with all their mind and all that. What's the next commandment? Keep it on your heart. And what's the next commandment? Teach it to your children. Teach it to the people. Talk about it. And how, where should you teach it with the children? Well, you should talk about it when you sit down in your house and you, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. What's the idea? In the car, after soccer practice, at the breakfast table. Like, that's what it means. If you're a Christian parent, that's what it looks like to always be murmuring, meditating on the law. 
Because right, there's sometimes where you don't have anyone to talk to about it. You're alone. Right? And then you can murmur it to yourself. You can meditate on it to yourself. But there's so many times when you can talk about it out loud with the people around you. Right? And if you're a mother, that looks like with your kids. If you're a father, that looks like with your wife, with your kids. Right? There are so many opportunities that we have to meditate on the word of God. We need to do it. That's what the blessed person will be like. Those two things. Guarding against corrupting influences. Resolving to depend on God's word, not just to read it. That's hard, but I do think that is the path that leads to blessing. It is so clear in Psalm 1. That's the case. There's another path Psalm 1 talks about. Back in Psalm 1, it says, not so are the wicked. In Psalm 1, 4, it's very clear, not so are the wicked. They're not the tree planted by streams of water. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Their end is perishing. Their end in the judgment, condemnation. Their end when it comes to the congregation of the righteous, abandoned, right? Not included, excluded. As we approach this new year, I think one of the things that will guard us from these corrupting influences and will draw us back to the word of God is for us to just take a little bit of time here remembering the end of this wicked path. Remembering the end of what your life would be if Jesus did not save you. It's the language of Romans 6. If we have been set free from the slavery of sin, why would we go back to be enslaved in it anymore? It's an apt reminder for us, and I'd love for you to write this down for point number three. Consider the sinful path's costly end. Consider the sinful path's costly end. Chaff language is used in the New Testament, as I said. This separation between the wheat and the chaff, but it's also used in the Old Testament, not just in Psalm 1. It's also used in Isaiah 17, 3, where the prophet thunders out, he says, the nations roar, like the roaring of many waters. They're powerful, aren't they? The nations that oppose God, it feels like a lot of power is involved there. But the Lord will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. They'll run from God. It's the picture in the book of Revelation, right? They want to hide themselves in the rocks because they don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. They're just like dust all the powers and the nations and the people and the leaders who oppose God and his people will be like Nebuchadnezzar who walked on the balcony of his palace thinking that he was all that, the king of kings, even described that way in Daniel's vision, the head of gold. He walks around and what does he say? Is this not Babylon that I have created? The hubris, right? He's so prideful. And God says, no, it's over, it's done. That's the end of the wicked path. And what, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He's knocked down on all fours and he starts eating grass like an animal. The most powerful king lost his mind in a moment? Yeah, the moment that God took it away. The wicked path is not one that we ever want to desire, although we are all guilty of at times wishing that we could be a part of. We all have moments where we wish that we could sin without consequence. In Psalm 1.1, it says that the scoffers, right, those are the evil people. Psalm 1 and 2 traditionally have actually kind of been viewed as one psalm, or at least part one or part two of one psalm. Some manuscripts in the New Testament say that, um, in quoting Psalm chapter 2 in the book of Acts, that that was actually Psalm 1, right? Some people put these together. And I think part of the reason, whether they were written together or not, maybe they were just put together because there's so many similarities. One of the things that shows up the word meditate shows up in Psalm 2, 1, it's the word plot. Why do the nations plot? You know what they meditate on? 
how they can overthrow God's rulership. That's what they meditate. That's what they think about. That's what they talk about on the way. The word scoff comes up in verse four. Look what it says. He who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs. He scoffs. It's this reversal, right? It's this reversal of, okay, yeah, the wicked, they might scoff now, but God will have the last laugh. And even the rebellion that takes place on this earth right now where people are constantly going against God's path for life, it says God is not threatened by it in any way. In fact, verse 7 says, the Lord said to me, someone speaks in Psalm 2. Someone starts talking. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The language that we even hear at the baptism of Jesus, that the author of Hebrews uses multiple times. Jesus, the son, the Messiah. He says, today you're my son. I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, hey, everyone listening, here's what he says. Hey, everybody, whether you're an Israelite, whether you're a Gentile, everyone who hears this, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, which seems like a paradox. How can you rejoice with trembling? Well, it's like what Psalm 130, verse 4, the song that we sang earlier. With God, there's forgiveness that he might be feared. Verse 12 says, we all need to kiss the sun. If we're walking on this unrighteous path, and some of you are, you've never turned to Christ, you've never been forgiven of your sins, here's the warning to you, and here's the offer of salvation that Jesus gives. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Submit to him. You or, and you'll perish in the way. If you don't, submit to Jesus. This for his wrath is quickly kindled. Interesting word here. What's the word? Blessed. It's the same word. That's why a lot of people think these are two psalms that go together, and I think there's a great similarity. What's the first word of Psalm 1-1? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now what do we see? Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Son, Jesus Christ. The way of the wicked will perish, the only way for us to get off that path of the wicked is to submit to the Son. And many of you have submitted to the Son. Many of you are walking on this righteous path, and the warning for us is not to desire that sinful path. There's another passage here in the Psalms I'd like you to turn to, Psalm 73. Let's turn there real quick. Psalm 73. I want to keep you just in the book of Psalms tonight, this morning. Psalm 73. Starts off, this righteous person says, I know that God is good to his people. I know God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I know that, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Like there, there was a time in which Although I knew that in principle, I practically didn't live that out because, verse number three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at the people on the unrighteous path and things went better for them. Yeah, I might have had an okay year, but what about the guy at my company who was constantly cutting corners? He had a great year, I'll tell you about that. The guy who was dishonest, well, he had an excellent year, better than I did, more commission than I got because he did it dishonestly. Well, verse four, they have no pangs until death. Their, their bodies are fat and sleek, like everything is going well for them. But look at verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task, right? I, I, I thought this is gonna be difficult until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Where does the path lead? 
It's a self-destructing path, but it's, it, it's a place that it says in the next verse, the Lord has set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You've probably seen this happen before. Maybe you've even been envious of a person who's cutting corners, and then what happens? Judgment. What happens to them? They get caught. The consequences are terrible. Why? Well, because they're not walking in the path that God would have them walk. They're walking in injustice or unrighteousness or whatever they do that's wrong. Sometimes you see it. They get caught. The great equalizer, if they don't even get caught in this life, is death. You've set them in slippery places, just like King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Why would I ever want that? But there was a time where I did. That's what Asaph says. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They're just like hollow ghosts around here. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And when my soul was embittered, when I was hurt, when I looked at the prosperity of the wicked, I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant, I was like a beast towards you, God. He's confessing the time where he wanted what the wicked people were doing. We should all confess that to the Lord, if that's been true of us. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. I love that. You guide me with your counsel. I'm in the counsel of the Lord because I'm in the law of the Lord that never changes, that will never prove to be untrue. I'm in God's world now, hearing his word. You guide me with your counsel, not the counsel of the wicked. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory no matter what happens this year, even if this is the year that you die. Afterwards, the Lord, you will receive me to glory only because of Jesus. He asked the question, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Remember that. Remember that every day. That's why we need to be in the word. We need to be reminded of that. Verse 27, he says, for behold, those who are far from you, again, more path language there, those who are away from the Lord, they will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it's good to be near God. That's what I want. I want closeness with God. That's what makes a happy new year, closeness with God. And I made the Lord God my refuge, just like it says in Psalm 2. We find refuge in Jesus, the Son, that I may tell of all your works. I may meditate. I may murmur. I may chatter about the works of God. As it says in Psalm 105 and Psalm 106, that we're always delighting ourselves in the wonderful works of the Lord. We look at the Bible. It teaches us that. We remember that. Consider sinful paths costly end. There's a little phrase back in Psalm 1, verse 6. It's very small, but I think it's where we need to end this morning. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. God cares. God sees, he cares, he knows. That's an intimate word in the Old Testament. Super intimate. He knows. Point number four, a way that you can have a happy new year is if you value God's perfect care for you. If you value that. If we not just know it intellectually, like it even says in Psalm 73.1, right? I, I know God is good to Israel, but for me, I was like in a slippery place because my feet, I, I almost slipped because I forgot what was true. I didn't value God's care for me. That word knowledge, to know, one of the best times that's used in the whole Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus 2, it says that God knows, and the context is so, it's so perfect. 
Because if you are living in Exodus chapter 2 as one of God's chosen people from the tribes of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it didn't feel like God knew. What's the context of Exodus chapter 2? You know it. It's the people of Israel in slavery, right? It says they groaned to God. They said, God, save us from this. God, bring your promises about. And all this groaning says God remembered his covenant. He knew his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel. It's like, well, God obviously sees, right? He sees everything. But no, it's like, but God saw them. He heard them, and then it says, and he knew. God saw and God knew. Perfect knowledge, perfect care for his people, his promised people who are going through something that's extremely difficult. Psalm 139 says the same thing. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 139 says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. David praises God because he's known by God. Like how important is that to you? That you know that no matter what happens, no matter what diagnosis, whether you live or whether you die in 2022, that the Lord knows you, that he cares for you, that he's forgiven you by the blood of Jesus. He says, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. It's not just that you see the externals of my life. You know what I'm feeling, God. You search out my path. Am I lying down or acquainted with you? My path, whether, whether I'm walking, whether I'm lying down, it's all known to God. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Like you already know what I'm gonna say. You know what I'm gonna do. Everything is known by the Lord. That might sound scary. It might sound like a security system, right? God knows everything. Well, there's comfort here. In verse number five, it says, you hem me in behind and before. It's the the picture of security come from being known by God. You're secure because God, who sees everything and knows everything, he has a special care and knowledge of you, his people. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. This care from God. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. You can't even fathom all that God knows about you. Like, you don't even know all the stuff to know about you. I don't know all the stuff to know about me, let alone the person sitting next to you and all the people throughout all of time and history that he knows. I mean, think about that. He knows every person in this room, every fear, every care, every anxiety, every experience, every good thing, every bad thing, every hair on your head. It's too wonderful for me to know. That's so high, I can't even attain it, but I need to find comfort and security in the fact that God knows me. And Jesus takes it one step further in John chapter 10. What does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And that section is so so amazing. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There are other people who will pretend to know and to care as much as me, he says. The hired hand, who's not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep. He sees a wolf coming and he leaves. He cares about his life more than the life of the sheep. Kind of like those bad shepherds that we read about in the book of Ezekiel, right? Wicked shepherds, those leaders of Israel who abandoned their post to take care of the people and they used the people of Israel for their own advantage. He says, the hired hand sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and they're scattered. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own, and my own know me. Is that what's going to give us a happy new year? I think it is. No matter what happens, whether this is the best year of your life or the worst year of your life, you can still have a happy new year because you're known by God. I watched a documentary this week about something I did not know about. I'm going to say a phrase. I want you to tell me if it rings a bell for you. Marine land of the Pacific. You know what that is? I didn't know what that was. Marine land of the Pacific. You ever heard of that? Apparently, it was a, an amusement park that was opened in 1954 in Palos Verdes. It was on the, on the point there, this amazing piece of property that was owned and operated by, at some point, it was actually owned and operated by some of the, uh, the studios. And they would shoot movies there and all the killer whale stuff. That all kind of really started at Marine land of the Pacific. But by 1987, it had been sold and sold again and sold again and had been changed and all the, the characters were kind of added and taken away. And uh, by 1987, the company, I think that owned SeaWorld, bought it. And apparently, they shipped the killer whales up from L.A. down to San Diego and they became the main attraction down in San Diego. And that was the end of Marineland. And it sat abandoned for actually a couple decades. But now, if you went to the same plot of land, I think in about 2005, they started building this hotel, and now it's a super nice hotel. But marine land of the Pacific is just a piece of trivia that I didn't find out about until this week. There's another park that was opened the year later, in 1955, that was planted by freeways, streams of water, by the 5 and the 57 freeway. You know this park? Disneyland. Right? I guess that's kind of cheesy to say it was planted by streams of water, but you get the point. You couldn't imagine a time where Disneyland is forgotten. It's born fruit in and out. Like every season, every season, they, they can't, you know, I, I looked up how much does it cost to buy a season pass? Look it up. Like the top two pass, uh, passes, it says sold out. Like you can't even buy the, the nicest passes. They're like $1,000 or something. They go, there's like a wait list. Talk about attention. <laughs> they have never lacked attention. I mean, the only time it really closed for any extended period of time was during COVID. It's not forgotten. It's not abandoned, right? A lot of you can probably close your eyes and you can probably walk around that park in your mind. That's how well it's known, right? Well, those two amusement parks are a good illustration of what it is to be on the path of the wicked and on the path of the, the righteous. That one is known, not forgotten, cared for, beloved, and the other is forgotten, abandoned, and really just a piece of trivia. It reminds me of what God said to the Israelites in the book of Isaiah, near the end of the book of Isaiah, he says in Isaiah 62, that my people, although there was a time where that city of Jerusalem felt abandoned, and in a way it was, in a way God took his special care, remember in Ezekiel, when the presence of the Lord got lifted out of the temple and God said, like, out, right? They were abandoned. And it says there comes a time in the future when Messiah reigns, where it says you will now be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. That's true of every one of God's people. That's true of you. If you're known by God in Christ, you will not be forgotten. God will never forget about you. Come what may this year, God will know you. God will care about you. And that, if anything else, can give us security and a happy new year this year. Let's pray that we would have one. God, please help us digest this simple truth from Psalm 1 that you want us not to delight ourselves in the counsel of the wicked. You want us to constantly be shaped and molded by your word. I pray that we would repent if 
we've fallen in love with the world and we've given our heart and affection and energy and effort to things that are corrupting. Pray that we would identify things that we need to turn from this morning and that we would walk in the path of righteousness. That as we think about meditating on your word, that every day we would grab a thing or two from our daily Bible reading or whatever we're reading and we chew on it, we'd meditate on it. We would teach it to our children. We'd talk about it on the way. God, please help us with this. We know that we will wander if you don't hold us. We're thankful for your perfect provision and perfect care for us. Pray that that would be something we value all the days of our life, and especially this year. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.